First and more importantly, be safe, continue with social distancing, and let's talk about the last dance. I just got through watching The Last Dance, and I can't speak for everyone, but speaking for myself, I can't wait for episodes three and four. Um, First off, let me be fair to this point. You have to acknowledge that Jerry Krause was actually one of the more shrewd, one of the more smart, smart, clever GMs in the NBA at that point in time. Whether you agree or disagree with the idea that he was fooling around with the idea of actually trading, breaking up the team, but more importantly, trying to move on from the Jordan era Bulls, um, what he put together. And I'm not talking about obviously the show is about the last the last dance. I'm talking about as a as an overall franchise the dominance that they had over the course of an eight-year run, he did orchestrate much of that. So let me give credit to him for that. Having said that, I I knew, and I'd heard that Scottie Pippen at that time was unhappy with his contract. But I would not be honest if I told you I knew the actual details of his contract. I didn't. I only knew that he was unhappy and he wanted a new deal. And what I found out, and I think a lot of fans found out tonight, Scottie Pippen easily signed the worst contract in NBA history, especially for a player of his caliber of all the accomplishments and what he meant to that franchise, what he meant to Michael Jordan as a sidekick, what he meant even as an individual talent. Scottie was a great player. He signed a seven-year, $18 million deal. And if you listen to Scottie Pippen, he wanted to take care of his family. He came from a very poor family, father and brother in wheelchairs, and he wanted to take care of his family. And he felt like he could secure their future or help them by signing that deal. What I would say to this is, Scotty, I don't know if you had an agent at the time. If you did have an agent, your agent might be the worst agent ever. You, you just shouldn't have signed that deal. I mean, what's done is done. And when you consider he signed that deal in 1991 and all the successes that they had beyond that, most franchises, because of what he did, what he meant to the franchise and what he helped that franchise achieve, they would have ripped up that deal, redone his deal, and paid him to what he was valued at. But Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the Bulls, along with Jerry Krause, especially especially the owner, he said, if you do a deal with me, then that's the deal. Don't come to me two years later talking about you want to renegotiate because he won't do it. He took a hard line. So while Jerry Krause may be the bad guy or the face of the bad guys, if you will, film me on this. Everything Jerry Krause did or was empowered to do. That was done with the approval of the owner. So when you listen to Jerry Reinsdorf talk as if, well, that's between Scotty and Jerry Krause or, or Phil and Jerry Krause, 
Don't be fooled. He owns the team. Everything Jerry Krause did or was able to accomplish or the move that he made, ownership signed off on that. So don't sleep on that fact. What I saw watching the first couple of episodes was you could see the frustration early on with Michael Jordan in management, even when going back to his second season when he was injured and he wanted to play. And look, most 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 franchises, nobody's going to play around with their franchise player. So on that point, I understood where they were talking about. But at the same time, Michael knew his body, felt that he was healthy, ready to play, and they were putting him on seven-minute halves. And as you watch it play it out, it did appear like they were trying to tank, that they were trying to get higher draft picks. Remember, ultimately, when you own an NBA franchise, it is about money. It's about profit. It's about business. And to be fair, the Bulls, with Michael Jordan as an attraction, whether they were a very good team or a subpar team, people were going to come and watch the Bulls play. He was an attraction. They're going to make money off of Michael Jordan and company win or lose. And it goes on to say, as you watch the documentary play out, that from that point on, Michael and management were never really on the same page in terms of trust and belief in one another. I like also that they they kind of gave you some backstory. I like that. It's one thing to jump right into the 97-98 season and going forward what they were able to accomplish, but I like the fact that they gave you backstory on Michael Jordan. They gave you backstory on Scottie Pippen. And, and they showed you where Michael Jordan got his competitive drive. The way that he and his older brother's pushed each other how they actually came to blows they fought each other like they were that competitive they showed you that Scottie Pippen was at 1.62 made this incredible leap in size and came back 6.566 and he had those guard skills to go with that length and he came from this small college out of nowhere to be a lottery pick and that that's about Jerry Krause look I said it again Jerry Krause Whatever you think of him, you cannot say he did not know talent. He fleeced the Seattle Supersonics. The Sonics drafted Pippen, but were willing to trade with the Bulls, trading Pippen for Olden Polonies. Pippen and Horace Grant were rookies. They were 22-year-old rookies. And I like that they give you the process that the Bulls had to go through. Now, they didn't go in depth of the development of Pippen and Grant, but I can tell you this as a fan, you saw it. They were 22-year-old rookies, and they were cast into the fire the very first time the Bulls met the Pistons, and the Pistons beat them, I think it was four games to one, and you saw each time they played the Pistons, the following year, the year after that, and obviously the famous migraine game, the development of both Grant and Pippen. Grant didn't have as high a ceiling as Pippen, so he actually was closer to what he was going to be as a player faster than Scotty, but Scotty had a bigger ceiling. And once Scotty reached his ceiling and was an all-star caliber slash borderline superstar player, 
the Bulls took off. But we can talk about that another time. Let's get back to the last dance. What you have to remember about that season also is Scotty wanted to hold out, and he held out. He actually delayed a surgery that he could have got earlier in the offseason because he was upset about his contract situation. The Bulls got off to a very slow start. There's no Scottie Pippen. And remember, this is an older team. This isn't that first run. This is an older team where Jordan was 34, Rodman was 36, Harper was 34, Kerr was 32. Then you've got the backups like Weddington, Caffey. Caffey was younger, but the core of that group was in their 30s. And this was not the run you up and down or run you out the gym Bulls. This team right here, they were... They would walk it up and beat you with execution on offense and physical, tough, tenacious defense on the other side of the ball. I think that year they were ranked like 20th or 22nd in pace. So they walked it up. They controlled the game and they controlled paces of the game by beating you with execution. Without Scotty, they got off to a crazy slow start. They were actually 0-4 on the road early in the season. Michael was obviously frustrated getting on other people, but I think they they were able to adjust, turn it around. They actually got went from that 12 and 9 slow start. They were 27 and 11. And then when Scotty came back and they were at full strength, they go 35 and 9 down the stretch to finish 62 and 20. So that's a big turnaround from that slow start when they were at full strength. And I thought what was impressive was. Jordan minus Pippen, remember they had had some injuries, was able to keep them, not just keep them afloat, but they excelled. They were 27-11. He goes 28-5, just under four assists a game, just under two steals a game, wins another MVP, his last regular season MVP. Obviously, you know the ending. They went on to win the finals, and he won his sixth and last finals MVP. I can't wait till the next episodes three and four, because obviously they're going to introduce to you the rivalry between the bad boy Pistons and the Bulls, the physical play, the Jordan rules, the intimidation, how they tried to get in Pippen's head. All those things are going to come to the surface, which is going to obviously bring up the animosity, the rivalry, maybe to some degree, the dislike or hatred between Michael Jordan Scottie Pippen, Isaiah Thomas, and maybe other members of the Bad Boy Pistons as well. This is kind of unique when you think of Dennis Rodman because he was part of that Bad Boys Pistons in the early 90s, and he ends his career, or at least he ends his championship-winning career with those three-peat bulls on that second three-peat. If you haven't seen The Last Dance and you are a basketball fan, or you're a fan of Michael Jordan, or you're just a fan of sports, I'm telling you now, it's a must-watch. It's important to note, because I've heard this mentioned before, I've heard this question posed, what would the Jordan-era Bulls do if they had to play against a dominant center because they really just played with center by committees? Bill Cartwright was a solid player, but it wasn't a big scorer, wasn't a dominant rebounder, but he was a solid player that filled a role along with Bill Weddington and Luke Longley. 
this team, they they comprised a lot of really smart basketball, I would say guys with high basketball IQs, and they put them around Jordan and Pippen. But to answer that question, remember, those Bulls teams, they came up in one of the greatest eras, if not the greatest eras for centers. Ewing, Mourning, Matumbo, Olajuwon, Robinson, Shaq, they were all there. Now, obviously, he didn't have to go through Olajuwon because he was in the other conference, but he beat Patrick Ewing multiple times in the playoffs. They lost to the to the Shaq Penny-led Magic when Jordan came back, I think the last 17 games of that second season. You know what? While we're at it, let me remind people a couple of things about that second season. Because I've heard guys like Shannon Sharp say, yo, Pip, look, Scottie Pippen, great player. And when Jordan retired, wanted to go play baseball, that next season, the Bulls go 55 and 27. Pippen averages 25 or 22, 8 and 5 with three steals. Shot 49% from the field, 32% from three, was a legit MVP candidate. Led them to the conference semis. They lost to the Knicks in one of the worst calls maybe in NBA history, but What's done is done. The point is, you're often hearing the, well, they won more games the next season without Jordan. Yes, Pippen had a great season. But there was another season after that. The very next year, that same Bulls team, minus Horace Grant because he did leave in free agency, they were 34-31. and And they were the seventh or eighth seed at one point. Jordan comes back, and they go down the stretch of the season and they go 13 and 4 to finish 47 and 35. There are a lot of dominant centers back in that day. Remember this about that time. Jordan kind of broke a mold because most teams they thought you you know you were taught to you build through the bigs. You had to have a great big man to win titles. That was the thinking then. That's why there was a Ewing and an Elijah one. And remember, Jordan Elijah one came in the same class. Houston picking Elijah one number one. That's not the wrong pick. He was a great player and he gave them two titles, one of the greatest two way players in NBA history. Jordan broke the mold because he wasn't a big. He was a 6'6 swingman that dominated the league. And that was never done by someone that size. Yes, Magic and Bird were great. Incredible basketball minds, incredible basketball IQs, versatile players, great leaders, great players, saved the league. No debating that. But what they both also had in common was they both played with great bigs. Magic played with the greatest center of all time, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Bird played with Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, and Bill Walton came off his bench. There is a reason why... They call that Boston front line the greatest front line of all time. So they both play with great bigs. What Jordan did, or should I say with Phil and Tex Winters, and what they did was they built the team, they built their role players around those two perimeter players. Once Pippen developed and he could establish himself as a star in his own right, Horace Grant, who 
is a better overall player than Dennis Rodman in terms of the, his ability to score. And I'm not saying Horace Grant was as impactful as Dennis Rodman. That's a totally different thing. But they built that team around those wings, and that team, along with that franchise, they dominated the league with two wing players, and that had never been done before. Think about how many times the Bulls beat Alonzo Mourning in the playoffs, Patrick Ewing in the playoffs. They never met David Robinson, obviously, because he was in the West. Um, we've always talked about what would have happened had they ever met Elijah Wan's Rockets. I would have loved to have seen that matchup. Mad Max going up against Jordan, Pippen versus Robert Ory, and there's Kenny Smith and Steve Kerr, and that would have been an interesting series. I say that to say this, though. Not too long ago, Shaq said that the three-peat Lakers, which, by the way, love them. I'm a diehard Laker fan. Would have beaten the Bulls easily because the Bulls had no one that could guard Shaq. Facts. They had no one that could guard Shaq. But here's the thing. They had no one that could guard Shaq the same season that Jordan got a whole offseason under him, came back, played Shaq and Penny in the playoffs, and they swept them. Yes, Shaq had decent numbers. But he didn't dominate the series. I think if he played against the second three P Bulls, he would have decent numbers. He would have he would have a couple of great games, but he wouldn't dominate the series. The question really would be, could Kobe cancel out Jordan? And I love Kobe, and we've heard it ad nauseum that he is the closest thing to Michael Jordan. That might be true. But here's the thing. You can't cancel out a better version of yourself. As great as Kobe is, Jordan is the better version of Kobe. I love Kobe. He's not canceling out Jordan. He's going to lose that battle. And I think that if you look at the role players on both those rosters, I think the Bulls had better role players who fit into what they had to do within the triangle. Hey, look. I'm looking forward to episodes three and four. I know you are. I do have one question for the fam, so we can do a Q&A the rest of this week. First question. If Michael Jordan never returns, if he never comes back for the 95-96 season, does Scottie Pippen ever win another NBA title? And off the top of your head, Give me your all-time starting five. It doesn't have to be a Rushmore player. You might say Stephon Marbury's in your top five or Steve Nash, Steph Curry. By the way, for all those people out there to say, Mo, you hating on Steph Curry, I'm a big Steph Curry fan. I just don't believe that right now today, this moment in time, that he is currently a top 10 all-time player. We can agree to disagree respectfully. If you tell me you believe otherwise and you say this is why, I will listen to you. I will make my case. And we could just give each other a nod and keep it moving. And maybe eventually you'll prove me wrong and, and, and Steph will end up being a top 10. If he does, that wouldn't anger me or disappoint me. That would impress me. Look, I think Steph has a lot of productive years ahead of him. 
I don't know if he's going to win any more titles, but what if he does? What if he wins another MVP and wins a finals MVP? That's a different conversation. But I digress. Your top five starting five all time. So I'm going to give you mine. And it was a tough, it was a tough one between two players that I love. I had to decide ultimately between Larry Bird and Tim Duncan. And I went with Larry Bird. But obviously my backcourt, I've got Magic, Jordan. I've got Kareem, man in the middle, LeBron, and Larry Bird. But I was really struggling with, because I really love Tim Duncan. And, and, and technically, I know he's listed as a, a power forward, but he really was a 4-5. He played as much center as he did power forward. But I wasn't going to put Tim Duncan ahead of the better version of Kareem. I think when you look at great players, like all-time great players, you could pick a random season when you're talking about all-time great players. And that's what I did. I, I actually just looked at random seasons and put my finger on a random season. Magic's on there. It was a year where he averaged 22 points, 6 rebounds, 11 assists, 48% from the field. But more importantly, it was his best season from three, 38%. I took Jordan a year where he averaged 33, 6, 6. Three steals, 52% from the field, 37 from three. Kareem, 27 points, 17 rebounds, five assists, one and a half steals, four and a half blocks. Now, obviously, that was Kareem in the Milwaukee days. LeBron, 29, 7, and 8, almost two steals and a block a game. Bird, 28 points, 10 rebounds, six assists, almost two steals and almost a block and a half a game. 52% from the field, 42% from three. These are iconic all-time great players. That's my all-time starting five. I'm definitely interested in hearing what yours is. Hit me back. 